Well, good morning. Thank you so much for coming this day. I'm Pastor Tom, and uh, I get to pretend to be like Brian because I'm wearing a blue shirt. Um, Pastor Brian is uh, given and asked all the campus pastors to be preaching today uh, as we uh, continue to connect with our congregations, not only uh, in pastoral care and things we spend most of our time doing, but also in preaching and teaching to talk a little bit more about some of the distinctives of campuses and things. So uh, this morning, um, I have the great privilege of being here uh, to share with you. Um, uh, from God's Word, we're going to continue in the series in Thrive. Um, I just want to share, as we started, that um, I was really saddened. I went to a... Um, an event the other night, and I, we had a chance to drive an old friend. And as we were driving, I was asking um, our old friend, um, you know, why she hasn't been going to church recently. She still loves Jesus. She still hangs out with certain Christ followers sometimes. And she said to me, well, really, it's because, um, it's because uh, I love God. I love Jesus. It's just the people of God who really make it hard to go to church. She said, people just are not as considerate. They don't remember my name. They don't, you know, uh, take, call me and do all these things. And I was like, wow. It is, you know, what they always say. Um, it is the church, the people of the church, uh, Christ followers who are, are the most attractive parts of the church sometimes. But also it's the people of God who are also the most uh, distracting and detracting. Uh, for the people, uh, for other people. And so this morning we're going to talk a little bit about that because as we talk about what it means to thrive um, and be more and more uh, in tune with who God is in our relationship with him, that should have a manifestation. That should really change the ways and who we are and the inside flowing outward. Um, that it should be an inside-out kind of movement. We're going to talk about that today. Um, and um, just to remind you, last time we here, I talked about how, could you turn on the house lights just a little so I could see faces? I have a hard time. This is a little too daunting. Is there a way to turn this down and up the lights? Oh, there you go. There are people there. That's, I like that. I like it when there are people. Okay, it's, it's much more helpful for me because then I can be a teacher and not an entertainer. Um, and so the idea is that uh, as, uh, it, it, um, you know, as we've been traveling and thinking and, and realizing that the great branches of Christendom, I'm going to use the word Christendom, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the Roman branch, the Protestant branch, and the Eastern branch, one of the things of the Eastern branch when we were traveling in Greece was a reminder, as I've been reading in, uh, in other readings, um, for instance, Robert uh, Letcham, uh, reminds us that there's this theology that's really great in the Eastern uh, traditions called theosis. Theosis, and that is the idea that as God uh, calls us to be his children, not only does he initiate us and bring us out of darkness, he invites us to be a part of who he is. That we as the individuals, we are those who are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and so we are partakers of the Trinity. Because, because we are in Christ, Christ is in the Trinity, we are part of God sort of deifying us, not substantively, but in character, in who we are. And this, the, in the Eastern church, they call it theosis. And they say this whole act of sanctification, this act of us becoming like Jesus, is the essence of what it means for our time here upon this earth. You see, and I think that that's where, and he says in his book, it's because oftentimes we Westerners um, and Protestants, and particularly evangelicals, focus so much on us being born again. 
and having this security in Christ, we don't talk nearly enough about what it means to be um, in Christ and Christ in us and him transforming us from the inside out to become more and more like Jesus. You see, so that's what we're really talking about this morning as we talk about what it means to become more and more like Jesus. Pastor Brian um, launched this last week in Colossians chapter 3, and he used this beautiful imagery of the taking off and the putting on. Um, and that's the imagery the Apostle Paul uses. And uh, as we traveled, and I traveled in Turkey a few years ago, there's a great illustration of that. Put, if you put down where Turkey is, um, you know, the Mediterranean, and there's Colossae there. And Ephesus is just 70 miles to the west of that. This is the Mediterranean down here, right? And that's modern-day Turkey. Um, what you see is that it's pretty close. And in Ephesus, and you'll realize that Ephesus and Colossae are almost sister cities. They, um, and, and in the next slide, you'll see that there's an ancient church, St. John's, in Ephesus. And St. John's, um, it was built over what we believe is the tomb of John, you know, the Apostle. Um, and so that church uh, sits there, and in that church there's this baptistry. It's wonderful. This baptistry, if you in the in the western side, um, to the eastern side, it's filled with water. Think of it filled with water. And a person, if you were a baptism candidate um, and you proclaim Christ, you would be on this end. You would be um, uh, clothed in a darkish kind of uh, 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 cloak, a robe. And what would happen is that, of course, this is. Men would be baptized different times as women, okay? Um, and so the ceremony with everyone gathered around, I, as a baptizee, would remove my dark cloak. I would be just in my, you know, uh, underwear, whatever, my private part, you know. Uh, and what would happen is that, well, go back a second. Um, what would happen is that I would enter in, I would be baptized, he has room for the minister on this side, baptized to be identified as the death, and then come out on the other end, on the eastern end, walking into the morning light. You see? And at that point, I would be robed with a white robe that would be given to me. I don't have a white robe that looks just like that, but it's something like that. All right? clothed in white. That would symbolize all the scriptures talk about us being in Christ and us becoming like Christ and ultimately glorified with Christ. You see, the imagery was so profound that everyone and everyone who would be part of that ceremony would also be wearing white. Does that make sense? Because that would be a symbol of the community of faith even upon the earth being purified, being uh, uh, sanctified, being set apart being holy unto the Lord. And so this is the imagery I think the Apostle Paul is uh, projecting in Colossians when he talks about taking off the old, you know, and putting on the new. The old self with all of its, um, and it's a list of, you know, uh, indiscretions in the early part of this chapter, uh, and then putting on the new, which is what we're going to be talking about. Okay, so this morning we're going to talk about what it looks like to be putting on the new self, these aspects of the new self. And I want to suggest that it's in, um, I read a book recently, it's in um, orthopathy, orthodoxy, and orthopraxy. Okay, did you get that? Everyone knows orthodoxy, which is right word, or I'm going to call it Christodoxy. Christopraxy, which is what? Christ-centered, Christ-like praxis, practice. And Christopathy, which is Christ-like empathy and passion and heart. 
Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. Talk the inside out. So we'll talk first about what it looks like. And let's look at the scripture this morning um, and, and be reminded of that. But first, we have to be mindful that in this passage, we're, we, we have to be reminded that is the indicative that drives the imperative. Right? Remember that from last week. The indicative that drives the imperative. The indicative meaning that which is already true. That which is real of us already, which drives how we are to become uh, into the future. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, that is the indicative. That's who we are. We are already chosen of God. Language is similar to that of the Old Testament. We are chosen of God. We are holy, set, a, set apart for God's purposes um, and pure, and that we are dearly beloved. We are beloved of God. These are the characteristics that are true of ready who we are. Therefore, therefore, the imperative, then clothe yourself with... Uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and passion. Uh, bear with each other. Forgive one another also as he has forgiven and uh, grievance against any one of you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which combines them all together in perfect unity. So love, I think, characterizes, characterizes summarizes all that's gone before. So we're going to use that and illustrate that this way. A robe of white. And the love of Christ. The love of Christ is the inside outness of who we are. As we are those who are um, recognizing uh, Christ's great love for us, we can be those who are characterized by these aspects uh, uh, you know, in our relationships with each other. It's really focused upon our relationship with each other, this section, I think. Many people actually read this passage in their marriages, right? In their wedding ceremonies. Uh, I met someone this morning. Who, who, who said that? Okay, there you go. Oh, thank you, Nancy. So, you know, lots of weddings, and so I can't do justice to all the beautiful wedding homilies, but I think the summary of this is that as we understand who we are in Christ, then we can put on these characteristics. And particularly, as we look at the, I think you can think of them in pairs, passion, Oh, sorry, compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, patience, and forbearance, they kind of go together, okay, as you think about that. I want to think about that especially not only in the context of marriage and family and um, relationships, bosses, and, and employees, as it's often in the case um, as we look later in the next chapters, um, but also in the context of our community life together. Our community life together as we hope to become a people at this uh, campus and at this church to really be more reflective of diversity uh, and inclusion, multi-generational, all these things we're recognizing that that is easier said than done. I used to think just having people all together who coming from different ethnicity, different ages and stuff like that was sufficient. Representation was sufficient. Representation is not sufficient. That's not true unity. It's not expressing all these things. Um, Dana is here, right? And Ron, uh, thank you so much for coming back. They're the founding pastors. Um, and so uh, one of the things I've been learning with Dana, from Dana, is this whole idea of cultural awareness, cultural um, competency, some people would call it, or cultural intelligence. And in this next screen, um, there's a book uh, that's kind of old cultural intelligence. Uh, it's a, oh, keep going. Um, well, as, as we look upon these characteristics, one more, one more. Oh, yeah, that was this. Okay, uh, that we reminded that um, there were tensions in the church. 
there were probably tensions in the church. I mean, I'm not making this up, right? When Apostle Paul, just in the verse that starts before this, he reminds us of who we are, to take off the old, and then he says, do not lie to each other. Um, So take off your old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no uh, Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Usually the apostles and writers of scripture put something in the positive because there's a reason for it. If you know the history of the New Testament, you know that there's always a constant tension between even Christ followers of different ethnicities, right? The Jews, uh, the Jewish uh, believers had questions and issues with the Gentile believers. That's why we needed a council in Acts chapter 15, because there were so much cultural differences and understandings of how it was to become a Christ follower that they had all these tensions. And if you were um, a Jew of that day, a Jewish man, you would say, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile, a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. You know, right, right in that, that order. Um, you know, so you recognize that there's tr- tremendous animosity between ethnicities. Yeah, I recognize that, um, that those who are circumcised, those who are uh, perhaps even proselytes to the faith, uh, look down upon those who are uncircumcised, right? And certainly the Jew, uh, uh, Greeks look down upon those who are Jews who were, were a part of the uh, pro- um, circumcision. Uh, barbarians, Scythians, you know, all this represents people who are uncouth, cruel, um, people that you wouldn't want to associate with. And certainly, uh, slaves and free, the differentiation between that. So there was all this ethnic, cultural, um, you know, distinctions and tensions there. And I think that's why throughout the New Testament, if you look closely, there's often an exhortation, even within the church, that we should be those who are loving each other in Christ. Because we are all, what it says, but Christ is all and in all. That means before God, all these things really don't matter in terms of our status. In terms of who we are before God. And yet, there's tension. So what is the solution to that tension? It is because we can become those who have the heart of Christ. Our love and our, um, uh, the peace that we have among each other. Um, So in this book, um, uh, Peterson and others, um, Myers at the latest Global Awareness Conference, you guys were there, Leadership Conference, um, remind us in the next slide that we all come with different um, baggage. Well, I don't say baggage. We come come from different cultures, and it's called the iceberg of culture, that what we see in our behavior is above the waterline over here on the left, um, and uh, uh, what we see and uh, perceive of each other and how we act and how we dress and the, the things that we buy and all these kind of things are sort of above the waterline. These are the things we see. And yet the reality, uh, the deeper reality is that there's an iceberg of opinions, viewpoints, attitudes, philosophies, values, and convictions that are below the surface that we don't always perceive but are just as uh, 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 you know, uh, determinative of how we act, how we think, and how we interact. And so, um, in, the, in those, some of these illustrations over there. But in the next slide, what's helpful is that in um, Meyer's book, um, what we do is we begin to sift out some of those differences that are under the waterline. Under the waterline. She calls it cultural maps of different countries or cultures. She has different cultures, the French, the German, the uh, Chinese, the, the Japanese on top. Generalizations. Generalizations. And yet, 
she can perceive that in areas of communication, um, whether it is low or high in context, in evaluating feedback, um, whether it is uh, very direct or very indirect, persuading, wh whether we do principles first or application first, in leading, is egalitarian or is it uh, hierarchical, deciding whether it's consensual or whether it's top-down, trusting whether it's base, uh, task-based or relationship-based, disagreeing, confrontational, uh, or uh, avoidance, and scheduling of time, either linear or I would say flexible or people-oriented. You know, these are different cultures perceive things differently and we value them differently. So what happens is that there's oftentimes great conflicts if you're on the... Um, Sung Chan Ra, uh, in his other in his book, suggests that there's some, what he would consider um, what we consider a primary culture, which would be more on the right side, um, traditional and primary culture. Um, uh, on the left side, would maybe maybe he would call secondary or. Uh, 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 another kind of culture, and so there's tensions in those cultures. And what happens is that sometimes we evaluate each other based on those tensions. Now, I'm going to steal Dana's line. She says, you can't avoid all the landmines, right? You can walk around and try to understand everyone's culture, but what happens is you really have to realize that we're going to step on landmines because we can't always see under the surface. And even as we have generalizations like this, we yet still realize that we are those who are going to make mistakes. And what we have to do is learn to act graciously. And that's why these passages here that talks about how we are to be what? To one another. It, again, we have to have hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. These are the kind of characteristics that are going to help us to navigate such a complex world in which we are now living. Not only out there, but even in here. Right? I'm on a staff at Grace Chapel. Everyone is a Christ follower, loves Jesus, given up much to be part of the staff of the church, you know. Could be paid a lot more, a lot more lucratively somewhere else, but they've come and be called together. And yet sometimes I realize, hey, because of culture, it's very different. When I was in the Chinese church, I was the most vocal, you know, and, 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 and self-asserting person on staff. You know, and they considered me sort of this young upstart, you know, compared to the Chinese culture from which I come. And now I'm on the Grace Chapel, Chapel staff, and I'm sort of the quiet, you know, demure one, you know, relatively speaking. These are relative realities. And, you know, trying to be in a staff and realizing that, um, you know, I tended to wait for the elder in the group to make, you know, a decision. So we'd wait on him. There would be silence and allowed for him to speak, him to speak. Right? And there would be, you know, this uh, sort of uh, hierarchy and eldership and all these kind of things. And we allow that to speak. And here, over here, um, the little kids call me Tom. Tom. Not Elder Tom, Pastor Tom, or Your Most Holiness. Um, <laughs> but little guys, you know. And in order to get a, 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 a you know, conversation, I have to kind of assert myself and almost talk like, over someone as they finish their sentence. I'm already starting my sentence, right? So there are cultural things, and sometimes we realize, don't recognize that it's, it, it's not purposeful. We need a lot of forgiveness. We need a lot of forbearance, humility, because the, the other thing that Pastor Song Chan reminds me of is that oftentimes there's cultural imperialism. We believe our culture, 
the way we do things is the right way. The only right way. And so we impose that upon others. So we see folks and we, they act differently. We go, that kid is just disrespectful. Or that person is so full of themselves that they're asserting themselves. We make all these kind of judgments. And if you're the dominant culture, your definition of what's right becomes the standard, right? So we need to be careful of that as we are part of God's people, that we are close ourselves in an attitude that is of Christ, filled with his love, filled with the peace that comes from him. We're reminded that uh, um, in this passage, it also talks about how it is that we are called to be at peace with one another. But one illustration of forgiveness before I forget is that uh, I was at LCA. I was here earlier this week checking some of the stuff in the tanker in the back uh, container truck. And I, I, I was waved down by a woman as I was leaving. And I was going really slowly. And this um, you know, Haitian woman, uh, very dark complexion, was waving at me. And I was like, do I know you? And you know, pulled up and she said, don't you remember me? I'm Adelaide. And I was like, oh. And I was really embarrassed. Adelaide was, uh, is a nurse and, and now, but she was a visiting aide to my neighbor. Um, and I was helping my neighbor, you know, with her uh, planning and things like that, helping with her finances and taking care of stuff. And she, my neighbor, elderly neighbor, and, uh, you know, a French-Canadian husband, and she's, uh, you know, sort of English. And uh, she's been, you know, very staunch, very sort of um, uh, uh, um, concerned about finances. And because she's elderly, she really always wanted to have enough cash on hand. So she you know, was laid up, she had lots of medical issues, and so Adelaide came once a week, twice a week, to kind of help do the, the, the housekeeping. And what happened was that uh, my neighbor, um, she kept a stash of $10,000 in a shoebox in her house. And one day, she discovered it was missing. And I was like, um, Elsie, are you sure it's missing? Let's look around. We couldn't find it. She said, I know. It was right here. It was in a shoebox. It was right here. And the only person that's been here is Adelaide. I had to listen to my neighbor. She said, well, call the police. Make sure. Da, 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 da. And we had to report her. And, you know, but the police took the report and stuff like that. But there's no physical evidence. But she was just sure that she was the only person she allowed in the house. And she must have been the person who took the $10,000. Yeah, reported to the police. Eventually, Adelaide's um, supervisor heard. She got laid off because, you know, of all these kind of things. This is the Adelaide I met in the parking lot. And I was so embarrassed. I just said, oh, so, I'm so sorry because subsequent to that, some year later, Elsie found the 
Because she was elderly, she forgot that she had moved it from her historic place to a new, safer place. But by that time, Adelaide had already been laid off. She had already gone. We couldn't find her and things like that. Fast forward to today, this past week. I said, I'm so sorry. And because she has a child here, she says, you know what, Pastor? I trust God. I've forgiven her years ago. Years ago. And I was like, wow. If I had lost a job, but falsely accused, what would allow me to forgive? Only the love of Christ. Only the love of Christ. We are those who possess that kind of love in Christ Jesus. It comes from the inside out. No matter how culturally or whatever is wrong, whatever falsely accused we are, whatever things people do to us, we can still forgive because Christ first forgave us. We're mindful of Matthew 18, right? So, the first idea is that we are those who are in our hearts, right? In our character, in who we are, in our attitudes, we are Christopathy. Christ uh, attitude. Secondly, in this passage, sorry, we'll, we'll go faster. We'll go faster. Okay. We'll go faster. Um, and, 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 and it's captured here in verse 15. says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since, the members, um, since as members of one body you are called to be at peace and be thankful. So this is a summary of that. Love and peace of Christ. The next uh, section there, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your hearts. To God. This idea that we are to not only have a heart, um, but it, it manifests itself in our speech, right? So in our speech and things that we say, um, it is filled with Christ-likeness, okay? What happens in our hearts should overflow. It should be uh, that which overflows with abundance um, to others uh, and and. And what happens is that we are those um, who God has given uh, to be those who are like Christ. In what way, what, what is the message? What is the message? It's of love and grace, but it's also the message that um, the, the Apostle Paul earlier in the passage talks about truth and grace. And oftentimes in chapter 1, he talks about the truth of the gospel and the grace of the gospel. Also, in, first, in John chapter 1, talks about how Jesus is full of truth, grace and truth. So what happens is that we understand that as we minister, it is not just about accepting everyone on every cultural scheme and things like that. It's reality that there's truth and grace that needs to be communicated. And, and, that, and that's why it's, it's so encouraging to be a, a Bible-based uh, 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 ministry. Right? Because we recognize there is truth even as we extend grace. Right? Truth and grace go together. They're not antithetical to each other. And so as we minister, uh, we can do that 
um, together. Grace and truth. And so this, um, what we can see then is that we are those who are called to be in vital relationship to each other. We're called to be those who are ministering in such a way. I love that illustration and imagery of um, uh, the two illustrations of iron sharpening iron. And the illustration, do you guys know what a, you know, you see those really shiny stones that they sell in stores sometimes? You know how they shine those? You know how the, those stones are shined? They put them in a, a tumbler. A tumbler, and what they do is they add a little grit to the tumbler, and they add all these stones, and these things just tumble together over and over and over after, you know, a couple of weeks. Eventually, all these things shine up because all the rough pieces have kind of ground each other down, right, and ground each other off, and we are like those stones. We're individuals, but we're all in this tumbling action together. So that we can, as we are together, that we're um, teaching and admonishing one another and, and, and really uh, helping each other become the people that God has called us to become. You see, the implication here is that um, someone is looking at Scripture and using it uh, to teach, not just doctrine, but also to admonish. We don't like that term very much, admonishing. It means to warn. It means to caution. That we, when we see people, we encourage them to, um, to walk more closely with Jesus and give each other permission to do that. One of my good friends uh, uh, was engaged to one of my other good friends. This was when I was a younger man. And uh, they decided that they were going to buy a place, you know, and, and uh, because they were engaged, they thought, Hey, it's fine. You know, we, we, you, know, you know, we have an apartment, you know, an hour away. We're just going to, you know, spend our time over there together. And I was like, um, and, and, and because we're good friends, I could actually ask him, say, um, so, buddy, Kel Kevin, I'll call him, Kevin, wasn't Kevin, you guys know, uh, Kevin, um, is anything going on? Because you know what scriptures say about you know, premarital relationships and things. He said, yeah, 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 don't worry, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And, and I said, do you really, is that true? Like, even, like, after midnight, you know, you guys are together, you're already engaged, and, you know, it's not, it's not over until the fat lady sings, I said. Um, you're not married till it's real. Uh, and he said, no, 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 don't worry. And I said, well, but you're also deacons at our church, and I think you should think about your appearance and being above reproach to other people as well. And uh, he, you know, Kev, Kevin talked to his um, fiance, and they decided that um, it would be better for them not to be spending. Because, you know, the apartment was a, actually a house that was big enough for both of them to be different places. But because he gave me permission to speak into his life, I could say, well, it's really not, you know, it's, it's really hard to resist temptation late into the night, and it's really bad for our witness as Christ's followers that you're doing this. You see, we need to be those who both have the courage to talk to others and also those who are willing to listen, willing to listen to receive admonishment. So being filled with love and grace, and, I, and hopefully that means that I was doing that out of love for him. And not just because I wanted to follow the letter of the law, right? Because it was good for him. It was good for his bride-to-be. It was good for the church. It was good for all of us. But here also talks about not only the 
um, kind of the act of teaching, but also the act of singing and worshiping. And this I want to talk just a little bit about because I really appreciate Santi Nancy coming, ministering with us, and you know, and and and, and um, because Grace Chapel is such a big and various place, we have so many different styles of worship, right? We have so many different styles of worship. So this is what I kind of think of as as different styles. We have all the different styles, and sometimes um, you know we, we call them the worship wars, yeah. Because people who are a little bit younger say stuff like, I can't stand it when we play all those old songs. They're so slow and the melody is so archaic and they're talking about stuff that's like eight years old. Um, I was with one of the song leaders recently and he said, I can't stand, uh, you know, Chris Tomlin. And I was like, because he's so old and foggy. I'm like, Chris Tomlin, uh, one, don't yuck my yums. That's my, what my son says. Don't yuck my yums. Uh, I do like Chris Tomlin, but two, he's not that old. He's still pumping out songs um, and stuff. So I was like, oh, okay. And, and then there's, on the other end, there's some of us who grew up on good old hymns, and, and, and we wonder about all this repetition, and uh, why do we just keep singing the same old lyric? You know, because it's supposed to be ministering to our hearts to our hearts and not just to our minds. You know, old hymns are wonderful. They have deep theological uh, significance, but sometimes they don't go deeper into our hearts. I just want to remind us that um, one of my favorite old hymns, A mighty fortress is our God. Da, 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 da. Okay, I can't get that low. It used to be a German beer song. Right? You know that, right? So our classic hymn used to be a German beer song. I mean, the melody comes with German beer song, and it's converted. It's been Christianized, right? So when Luther penned that, he was ripping off the lyric, I mean, the melody line from a beer song and putting spiritual words in it, okay? So let's be clear, you know, when we talk about classic, it's classic to us, but it wasn't always classic, Right? Pianos were abhorrent to those in the 17th century because it was such a modern thing. So, music and word, we are to minister the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we admonish each other. And finally, let me just close with this idea that we are to be the, ooh, this one, the hands and the practices of Christ. The hands and the practices of Christ. What we do is that we recognize that in this verse, it says, verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father, um, God the Father, through him. Okay, this idea of whatever we do, whatever we're doing. So the hard thing about evangelicals is that we are notorious for not doing much. The hard thing about evangelicals is that we tend to be, um, uh, you know, when I read scriptures, the, 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 the things that often come out to me are the things that we don't do, and we're more like the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees where Jesus said uh, in Matthew chapter 23, um, he said, teachers of the law and, and, and Pharisees sit on the Moses seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. 
And this whole section, all of it, this course where um, uh, Jesus is haranguing, says, woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law. He says that seven times. And one of them is, woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices and mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I think those of us who are churchgoers for a long time, especially we call ourselves perhaps evangelicals, sometimes we recognize, we've recognized that because of the history of how, um, you know, the, the social gospel was propagated in the century before last, and that the fundamentalism was a reaction to that, that we have spent most of our time really focusing on proper orthodoxy, Right? proper speech and, and doctrine, but really fail to have orthopraxy, Christopraxy. We don't practice what we preach. And so what happens is that we are those, who, I think the, the, the current generations begin to swing that pendulum back towards a proper alignment where we have both heart, our, our, our speech, and our hands and our, our deeds are in line with each other. What we need to do is be those who are indeed ministering and caring uh, for others in the name of Christ. Um, I'm encouraged um, because this past week we had a chance, uh, actually Dana was here, there. We had an opportunity to celebrate the 40th anniversary of uh, CUM, the Center for Urban uh, Ministerial Education, which is the Boston campus of Gordon-Conwell, uh, my alma mater. Um, and, and here we honored uh, the founding dean, uh, Dr. Uh, Eldon Diafanye. Uh, and in, in that, it was reminded, we were all reminded that in 40 years, um, this uh, dean uh, was such a vital part of the community of the urban ministry uh, that he really uh, helped people remember uh, that we are to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city uh, for the sake of the good of all people, not just for our group, not just for our tribe, but for the entire city. And as he preached and ministered and cared for people, he was an example uh, to the rest, uh, uh, you know, and, and the teacher to the campus uh, of what it means to be those who are incarnational, those who are living and moving in community and really making a difference, uh, not only in word, but also in deed. You and I are called to be those who are acting out and being the very Jesus uh, incarnate uh, in our relationships, in our communities, in our city, uh, in our world. We have an opportunity um, to do that as we think about that. I, uh, and I say that not all Christians have, have, have fallen victim to this, right? Our brothers and sisters in the Catholic tradition uh, often are way more uh, uh, socially conscious uh, than we are. Um, and so uh, I close with this um, encouragement. The prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And I would say it is in dying with Christ that we are born to eternal life in Christ. As we think about that, I'd like to close by encouraging us to 
ask ourselves, where is our heart? Where is our speech? Where is our praxis? Are we those who are clothed like Jesus? Are we those who are thinking of ourselves as those who are walking around as the very manifestations and incarnation of the Christ in us, the hope of glory? Let's take off all the things that are of old, the old self, and put on the new. Let's meditate for a moment what that looks like in our context for our lives, in the context of our families, context of our relationships in the church and in the world. Let's take a moment to pray on your own. Father, we come and we acknowledge that we fall far short of what it means to be clothed like Jesus in his heart, in his words, in his actions. Forgive us, we pray, and pour out your spirit upon us that we might by your spirit, by your energy, by you living in us and through us, become more and more like Jesus. Help us, we pray, in his name. Amen.